0: and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Today, we're joined by a guest who had such a huge impact last time she was on, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology, Lara Sheehy, who works at the George Washington University. She's joining us as well as our favourite expat Australian palo, Janine, who's in the United Kingdom. Welcome, ladies.
1: Thank you so much. Hello. Thanks for having us.
0: Uh, Absolute pleasure, as always. Now, Lara you speak up for Palestinians, you're very aware of the situation as is happening in Palestine, as we spoke on our last show, and that obviously makes you a target for Palestine's enemies. And being a target for en- the enemies of the Palestinians can manifest itself in any number of ways. In academia, we've seen with Stephen Salita, with Shahid Abu Salami, with so many other academics, you suffered Zionist lawfare. Mm -hmm. Why don't you talk us through exactly what happened?
2: Sure. And thank you for letting me speak. I think this is part of it is one part of these campaigns, these smear campaigns is the intent to silence us and intimidate us and make us feel like we're on the back foot. So we can't speak. Right. And I think this actually has something to do with it is uh, as a reminder, you know, not only am I a woman, but I'm a junior scholar. And I think we're seeing this trend a lot more. If you look at the, the last, let's say, 10 years okay, st- outside of Stephen Salaita, who are the people who have been targeted? And it's a really disturbing trend of women that are being targeted. And like, what does it mean when Arab women speak? What does it mean when those of us who believe that the center of a, of a unified Arab struggle is a free Palestine? And this is why we get targeted, right? So For me, this came out of a very notorious right wing organization called Stand With Us, who have been known and have been documented by like, by the way, not these massive pro-Palestinian organizations, but like. The Guardian and The Forward and all these places that we wouldn't consider to be pro-Palestine, but have just documented that Stand With Us works very closely with Israeli foreign ministry and sort of walks lock and step with the Israeli government to include, by the way, supporting settlements. So this is like not an even middle of the line group. This is a right wing Zionist organization that trains Students in high school, too, by the way, it's really disturbing if you really look at what they do in high school and in college to be in classrooms and to videotape or audiotape classrooms that might have professors who do work or activism for Palestine or for Palestinians. It doesn't even have to be the classroom content, which was the case with my my class. I teach at a graduate level clinical psychology program. My job is to train clinical psychologists. My class that I was teaching was about structural oppression. And we talk about the conditions that create oppression across the board. And this is an, actually an ethical imperative for me as somebody training psychologists who are going to end up seeing people in the world to be attentive to the ways in which the conditions of the world create suffering not people individually showing up with symptoms. So this was the class that I was teaching. And despite Stand With Us is very sloppy and a completely targeted campaign against me, my class didn't have Palestine-specific content on it, right? We were talking about sort of larger structures. Does that implicate Zionism and settler colonialism? Of course it does. That's the point, is for us, especially in the context of the United States, a settler colony, just like in Australia, a settler colony, is that we have to locate ourselves within these larger systems. So was there a sort of a larger implication for Zionism? Perhaps, and for the state of Israel itself, but that was the case with all the other states that we talked about in the class. So I'm saying this because these organizations really do go specifically after anybody who dares even make a connection right? Even if that connection isn't direct, which is what we saw in my case. Now, the biggest thing that we also see is they sort of fabricate these large campaigns with the hope that they will pick up, with the hope that the right-wing media will be really sort of activated by this and pick it up and regenerate this and make a big to-do about it, which is what happened with my case. So They filed on January 12th. The way I found out about it was an email from a right-wing online source that emailed me and said, we have received this Title VI complaint. This is in the United States. A Title VI complaint is filed with the Department of Education against a university, not a person. But this right-wing organization had received this complaint before they even filed it with the Department of Education. That should tell us everything we need to know. If an organization is working with these right-wing fascists to sort of get information out, that should already give us pause. And that is how I found out about it. And they asked me for comment. Of course, I didn't respond. And the next day, they filed it with the Department of Education. And what we found out is that they redacted every single person's name. Remember, this was a complaint against the university. So there were many people that were implicated in this. Nobody's name was mentioned except mine. And that's the connection we're seeing because who in that entire document does scholarly work on Palestine? Who in that entire document has documented the history also, not just of scholarly work, but of activist work that is intertwined with my scholarly work? I can't separate my scholarly work from my work for liberation of all peoples, but centering Palestine in that. And of course it was me. That's an easy link for them. And that's an easy link because we know how anti-Palestinian sentiment, anti-Arab sentiment and Islamophobia works, particularly in the United States. But we saw how this became a global thing. So it was pretty quick. And the death threats and the threats of bodily harm, threats of rape, threats of forced deportation, threats against my family came immediately after that. And that's what I mean to go back to like the purpose is to silence us the purpose is to make us feel afraid because who wants to speak quote-unquote when this is the response i did find out several months into this that one of the students in my class who i i believe is one of the students that has worked with stand with us was an intern with stand with us as a high school student so it never would have occurred to me that this was quote-unquote a setup but now This many months later, and after I've been exonerated by a third-party investigator, you look back and you go, was this a setup from the beginning? Were you sort of trying to find something? And the only way it could be a setup is if there's a racist expectation that Arab, Arabs, and pro-Palestinian activists are inherently anti-Semitic. That's the only way that this could be a setup. And And I do think there's that specious link that was being made here.
0: Oh, there's no question we're anti-Semitic, like. There's no question. I mean, because if Buddhists or Sikhs or Hindus took our houses, we'd be okay with it. <laughs> it's only because Jews took our house, murdered our parents, stole our crops and money, only because they're Jewish do we care. Right. A hundred percent.
2: Exactly. That's the specious argument that's made. And we can we can laugh about it, but I love that you made that comment because when you say it like that, you can say how absolutely absurd Absurd. That 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 connection is. It's not the violence.
0: It's got nothing right. to do with your religion. I'm glad you brought up the point that the reality is you're a woman of color, a junior academic, and they've targeted you to silence you because that then creates that Orwellian blanket for everybody that's behind you and quote unquote beneath you. Those women of color who are yet to be a junior academic, and I mean I say junior academic respectfully as a complete and utter no hopper back here. You're an assistant professor of clinical psychology. I mean, you know, Junior.
2: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I mean, Janine covered this very early on. And that was the brilliant sort of thread she was making for us all. Like this is, in many ways, this is a banal case. What is odd about it is what I've heard from many people is like the last, this global way in which this spread, not only in terms of hate, but also in terms of the outpouring of solidarity right? There's something odd about, like, what is it that's happening right now? I mean, all of us together can see what's happening right now in the settler colony. What is happening right now in Palestine absolutely coincided with this. And I think we see the sort of deterioration of facts on the ground by the apartheid settler state. We see that people are having a hard time believing the myths and the lies that have been propagated by a settler colonial apartheid state. And this all came together. So we can the solidarity that came out, I don't think is just about me. It's about saying enough already. We see this, this is a playbook. We understand, and that's Janine's piece. It's like, this is a playbook. If this happens all over the world... And the number of people that emailed me, younger scholars being like, this is what we're afraid of, but seeing you speak and not back down helps us, right? Or people who say, I didn't even get the chance to get into academia to have this happen to me because I was blocked before I even got in because I spoke up about Palestine. So, I mean, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails. So we have to be clear on this for every one me that's like, has gotten attention, there's Hundreds and thousands of others that are blips on the screen because people it's hard to maintain the stamina to be able to do this, especially if you don't feel like you have a network if you have solidarity
1: and i feel like stand with us is such like an important case study for us to think about as well because they are global as well like they i think they're just starting to set up in sydney and australia and they're prevalent on camp on campuses in in the uk as well so at the university i'm at the university of exeter which is where the european centre for palestine studies is in december there was a new student society that formed called the israeli zionist society which was backed by stand with us and which has now run two events Um, on campus one of them was Yosef Haddad and one of them was like a former Israeli military person and obviously we protested at both of them but it's also interesting to think about how they choose like strategic locations where there is like sites of knowledge production on Palestine revolutionary knowledge production on Palestine to be the sites that they target but I also think the lesson that comes out of this is like the importance of confronting Zionism in our locales. Cause I think a lot of the time in diaspora, especially like in the West, we can feel like the work we're doing is so distant from on the ground impact. But the fact that these organizations are targeting us and the work that we're doing so far from Palestine, the, the geographical boundaries of Palestine, goes to show that like every crack that we make in Zionism in whether it's America, Australia, UK, wherever that is, is having a material impact on confronting Zionism
2: in Palestine as well. Absolutely. There'd be no way, it's like BDS, right? If it were so weak, like they were always saying, why are you spending billions of dollars to push up against it? It's this is such a great point and it's a blueprint for us, not only in terms of actually how they work. And this is why the exoneration. So my university hired a third-party investigator almost immediately to look into this complaint, which broke with standards usually. And this was why this is a really important case for us and a win in many ways for exactly what you're saying, Janine, an unequivocal win for us to see how these organizations work and to show the sort of, underlying logics of it. I categorically reject the cynical reading that this is some conspiracy we're making. That's what they try to do, right? Oh, you're you're evoking this age-old anti-Semitic trope that this is a conspiracy. No, it's not a conspiracy. It's like capitalism. It's just descriptive. This is what you actually do. And if you do it this many times, it's just a pattern. Like I'm a psychoanalytic psychologist. I study patterns. If you do patterns enough times, they just are habit. That's what they are. So that is... What stand with us really does. But if you look at this, this third party investigator, and by the way, the third party investigator that was hired, the firm itself is an internationally renowned firm. It has an Israel practice within it. So this is not a firm that was biased in my favor. And this was one thing that the ADC who shout out to the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, who took my case and have been wonderful. There was a concern about that. There was a concern about this is the firm that's being chosen, but we wanted to engage in good faith because we knew there was nothing there. And I was in possession and the university was in possession with over 200 pages of documentation that showed that everything in that complaint was absolutely fabricated, which again goes back to what, this is the only thing they have. They come into these spaces, like you're saying, of knowledge production. And the only combating forces. Let's fabricate enough fluff. And because we know that racism and anti Palestinian sentiment exists, there might be traction. It wouldn't work with other situations, but with Palestine, it often works. So, this third party investigator did a three month comprehensive investigation interviewing everybody, and meaning everybody, meaning students that also were in the class that was documented in that complaint, faculty members, administrators. Because by the way, this quote unquote case was adjudicated already on the university level and on the dean's level in the fall. So this was the third time this was being. So it just shows you also how much resources are expended and how much time is expended, which is another part of what they deplete our time. Because when you're doing this sort of thing, when you're having to document like I had to do in the fall to make sure because I know the playbook. I knew stand with us before this, of course. I knew the play when you have to document all this thing, where are your energies being deflected from? And that's another part of the playbook is like you can't, you don't have as much energy and enough time to do all these other things that they feel is disruptive. So that's like a secondary thing for them. But the point that I wanted to make to Janine's point is this third party investigator, which, which was a internationally renowned firm, lawyers came in and the unequivocal. Report that they generated after three months of comprehensive investigation was that Stand With Us either fabricated, misled, or entirely decontextualized everything they put in that complaint. That is a huge win for us. For the first time, we have documentation from a third party legal source that says this is what happens and warns us against the conflation of anti Israel criticism with anti Semitism. This is unequivocal. And that's, I think that is why they had to re-up their sort of aggression, because they were like, oh my gosh, this is like they're they're not parsing words here. <laughs> they're saying this is exactly what happened in this case.
0: A brilliant victory. Lara, just for context, and I'd like to know because obviously in Stephen's case, his university washed their hands as quickly as they could. The dean came out with a statement almost the same night that the accusations came out, etc. You went through two investigations and then this third party completely independent, comes back, gets tasked with the job to do the, the investigation. Were you disempowered in that process? Was the university doing what it was supposed to? Because in a, let's say, a non-anti-Palestinian space, non-anti-Islamophobic space, in a normal sort of space, if the complaint had been about language or insecurity or pronouns or whatever it might have been, surely the process is much quicker and easier.
2: Yes, or never happens. Or never happens. That is what I think this is part of it is, I believe this was functioning on several levels. I think the university knew what we were in possession of. They knew that I had worked in good faith. They knew what type of faculty I was. They hired me knowing what my scholarship was. So on one level, I think they felt the third-party investigation would show exactly what they saw and they ended up discovering over the course of an entire semester of doing multiple steps. So I do think they felt like, okay, let's do it. What We would have nothing to hide. I want to say that that, that is likely how they, thought they were thinking. However, and this is what happens with Palestine. There's a Palestine exception that even in your quote unquote good faith, what you're also showing us is that nothing makes systems move as fast as the mere whisper of Palestine because nothing else gets this many resources expended on it externally, especially at a time when universities are saying, we need to buckle our belts, we need to like tighten ourselves. This is COVID times, we can't hire people. And then all of a sudden, these things cost a lot of money, a third party investigator costs a lot of money. So that's one thing that's already showing us, you take this seriously enough to do this. Number two, in the context of the United States, the Department of Education is the only entity that has the ability to adjudicate these things. The Department of Education hadn't even communicated with the university yet. So they were well within their rights to wait, as they do with a lot of things. Sometimes six years, sometimes the Department of Education doesn't even look at these things. So they move faster than the Department of Education, which is chilling for academic freedom because you're saying now every time there might be a complaint, this is what you're going to do. About one month later, Palestine Legal filed a Title VI complaint with the Department of Education on behalf of three Palestinian students at George Washington University, the same university. In this case, no fabrications completely documented that, for example, one of the most egregious things in this complaint was that students had been denied trauma services because the university shut down a trauma group that was meant for Palestinians before they could even join it. So this like this was news. This was documented. This wasn't like a fabrication. And the university didn't hire a third-party investigator. So already we were seeing the Palestine exception happening in real time. you know. And I think that's the biggest thing about this. So you're right. Yeah, it, w- it wouldn't have happened like this if it were about anything else.
0: Lara, it's a win for us. And because tomorrow, because it'll happen again, no question. What Stephen went through today, based on the precedent set, and good on George Washington, you know, that money not waiting for the education department to come back to them and say, listen, you know, you've got a case to answer here or we want you to explore this further. That precedent is set. But the same concurrent to that is, stand with us having created this much shit, how many other academics, other students, etc., aren't going to get into academia because deans are not going to employ more laras or more geniuses?
2: And that's what they're looking at, right? Because when this this decision for a third party investigator came out, Sandusky saw it as a win, and we saw another round of this, uh, you know, turmoil and aggression online, being like, "See, she's guilty. They would never have done this." So. But here's the thing about these places, and Janine might have more to say about this, is when you are a propaganda group, when you are a right-wing organization group, and I think this is really important for us in organizing spaces, there is no coherence to the argument. These groups will use anything as a way to prove their points. So if the third-party investigator hadn't been, you know, hired, it would have been, look, George Washington is protecting this anti-Semitic professor. If they did, it was, see, she's guilty. When the results came out, it was, this is a firm that was hired by George Washington University, and this was biased, and they're protecting the anti-Semitic professor. And that's why we really need to be careful. If the metric that we set for ourselves is based on the narrative that these right-wing organizations set for us, we are always losing. What we need to look at is instead the thousands of people that wrote that posted about this, that said unequivocally, this is what is being said about this. That is the narrative we need to stay on. And because that is the truth and justice is on side. Our... The thing that keeps changing, like one month ago, you were happy about this. And now, all of a sudden GW is like colluding with me, right? With, an, with a firm that has an Israel practice. We can't win those fights. And I think sometimes we get sucked into that. that those aren't our fights. Mm-hmm. Those are the fights of people who have nothing else to hold on to.
1: Yeah I mean like from a political messaging perspective like we're always taught that there's like kind of three camps of people there's like people that are our base or on our side there's the persuadables that's like the middle and then there's their base or our opponents and like we're always taught that actually if your message is like appealing to your opponents you actually the message is wrong because it's Like we need, we need to be building messaging and like campaigns that appeal to our base and to the persuadables, that kind of the persuadable middle and that riling up, I guess, like the, our enemies, if you want to call them that. So I think like the moment we start appealing to them, we're doing something completely wrong in, in our approach to political organizing, to liberation, all of those things.
0: Uh, Jeanine, it's okay to call them our enemies. They are clearly our enemies.
1: Yeah, no, I know.
0: (laughs) Listeners, we're joined by Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology, Lara Sheehy, and Janine, our favourite Aussie pal in the United Kingdom. Janine, you did some work with us here in Australia around the IHRA. University of Exeter, we we know about the IHRA, we've spoken about it on the show before. Definition innocuous, it's the working examples. All of this is around crying wolf. I mean, they've cheapened anti-Semitism now because they just throw it around so callously. And you've had, you know, Palestine's favourite Uncle Tom, Yusuf Haddad visit your campus?
1: Yeah, I mean, he visited He visited um, UCL in London and in the morning, and then he visited Exeter in the evening. And there was a massive protest in London. Um, and then he was snuck out of the back door um, because of protesters in London. He was snuck out of the back door to get on the train to Exeter. And then he was met in Exeter with, like, a group of protesters as well. So his kind of whole trip was disrupted and yeah like i think the the danger of ihra that we're seeing is that like it's it becomes so difficult to like we tried we really tried to like get the university to cancel the event with yosef haddad we've like met with them multiple times about the israel and zionist society and like the harm that it causes for students on campus and the university has adopted ihra and the student union the student guild has also adopted ihra which makes it very difficult for us to like even reason with them about why you know why these things so the only option that we're left with then is to make these events untenable is to make them like unsustainable they can't keep running them because every time they run them they can be met with like protesters or people that like you know for the Yosef Haddad event like half of the pe- more than half the people that registered were from uh, from our side that went in to disrupt the event and walked out halfway through so like that's the only option that adoption of IHRA and things like that leaves us with is to make these groups and societies and this work unsustainable but it goes to show the danger of it the way that it tries to to silence us
0: and they adopted the Ayatollah and working examples or just the definition?
1: I'm not sure, actually. I should check that. They definitely okay. have adopted the the definition I know. Because
0: we've had a couple here yeah. adopt the definition but not the examples. Melbourne Uni has gone the whole kit and caboodle and then said, but don't worry, we're going to get a definition of Islamophobia. Yeah. And so we wrote to them and said, yeah, but what about Palestinian Christians? And what about Sikhs and, and Hindus and Buddhists? Are you going to have a definition for everybody? Just absurd.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. I think this is why we need to sharpen our tools and why I love Janine's work so much, because everything she writes is a sharpening of our tools and an education tool for us, right? Is that in collapsing the criticism of a state that it's actually a reversal, a psychological reversal of what they say we do, the exclusivization. Why are you constantly exclusivize Israel? Why are you constantly picking on this small state? And it's like such a small state in the state of like all these aggressive Arab states, right? It's like immediately the racism jumps out. But actually what you're doing with such an expansive IHRA definition is you yourself are exclusivizing a state. Because on our side, when we're looking at these things as cross-solidarity struggles, when we understand that Palestine is representative of a logic of settler colonialism like the state known as Australia or Canada or New Zealand or any of these places and we can say it's actually not exclusive and of course is Araqat's position right that this is not exclusive this is what settler colonialism does but when you insist on a definition it exclusivizes it so we're always stuck in this reversal and i think part of it is we we have to learn the logic that that is used as a way to speak up against it and push up against it and refuse, refuse to even engage in these logics because they're always losing logics.
1: So Lara, if to end, you'd like to talk about the event that's coming up on, on May 12th to commemorate Nakba?
2: Yes, yes. So the Palestine Global Mental Health Network is hosting an event to commemorate 75 years of Nakba. And one of the things Palestine Global Mental Health Network tries to do is also sort of collapse this idea of Palestinians in diaspora versus Palestinians on the ground because diaspora is, was created by the Nakba. Um, and so Janine uh, and uh, Rawan Namir and Asar Kayal and there's one more person who's joining you all. Razin Marji. Exactly. We'll be doing an event, which I will just be emceeing. And I have the honor of emceeing this event and sort of saying, okay, these are the histories. These are the speaking, living histories of Palestine. And there's nothing more powerful to go back again. Maybe this is a full circle that when you target women, it's because look at this, this panel is full of strong Palestinian Arab women who will speak who will not be intimidated, who will not be silent, and who will continue the legacy of solidarity struggles that have always been led by women in the Arab world and especially in Philistine.
0: What a brilliant way to finish the episode. Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychology, Lara Sheehy, and Australia's favourite palo in the United Kingdom, Jeanine. we'll have a link to that event in the podcast as well as a couple of articles for you to catch up on exactly what Lara went through and her massive win Ladies of Power, thank you so very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: Be sure to check the link in the podcast for some articles and also a link to that event that Junyin is involved in. Listeners,
2: tell your friends, share the podcast, and remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.